Good morning, church family. We're so thankful for your presence here this last day of January. I am certainly, I'm certainly thankful to be here. I say that uh, every time I speak, but I especially mean it this time because I was um, supposed to speak last week, and then that was the way the schedule was laid out, and then I got I got the laryngitis, as June Carter once said. I, I could I was feeling fine. I was certainly fine enough to to be here. I wouldn't have just not come to the assembly with a, a sniffle, but I just, I couldn't speak, so how can you preach if you can't speak? I have, I have in the past, um, you know, had a slight amount of laryngitis, a little bit of a, a sore throat where my voice just isn't quite what it usually is, and you muddle through and you, you power through, and it's, it's not as good as it could be, the whole sermon suffers as well, but you, you make it through, but we have the advantage here where Alex was scheduled to go next week, and I gave him enough of advance warning, he could finish next week's sermon and do it a week ahead of time, so we were just able just to flip. And switch. Though I regret it, not just because I wasn't here in general, I regret it because um, Alex's sermon that he preached last week, he was supposed to preach this week, and it was supposed to be the last sermon of this series of sermons we've been in. And he had a very final installment kind of sermon, and I have the kind of middle sermon, so uh, it's going to feel kind of anticlimactic. It's going to feel like there's one more to go, but no, this, this is it. The one to go was last week, so uh, hopefully uh, you heard it. If not, you can check the tape go on YouTube and watch it, and then you'll get the finale all over again. But let's just kind of set the, the stage, kind of set the tone for what we're doing uh, here in this month of January. Uh, as you can see behind me or on either side of me, our theme for the year 2021 is love your neighbor. And as we said, Alex and I both, that first Sunday of the year, it is three little words, very short, very simple. It's, it's part of the commands of Jesus and of the old law before that, that we all know, that we're all familiar with. We've heard many sermons and, and classes about, but there's a lot packed into that expression. There's a lot to be done with that commandment, love your neighbor. And so we're looking forward to, both of us, spending the whole rest of this year just examining that commandment in all these various ways. And what we've been doing in this month of January, after that initial sermon was done, is we've been having a series of sermons looking at, in terms of how versatile you can take this theme, looking at some of the times in the Bible when that clear and obvious command, love your neighbor, was paired with a conditional word, specifically the word if. And it seems like this kind of dichotomous thing, you have this obvious command, of course I need to love my neighbor. But it's like the Bible, the Holy Spirit who inspired it, recognizes that it's not always as easy as it sounds. And it's easy to say, love your neighbor. It's easy to say, love your neighbor. It's not so easy to do, love your neighbor. And there's no better verse. I feel like there's a bad echo. Sorry, if, if maybe it's just me. There's no better verse to illustrate the, the difference between saying and doing. And the danger in just saying and not doing than in the text that we're going to study this morning, and, and that is James chapter 2. So open your Bibles, please, to James chapter 2. We're going to consider, for the most part, the, the text in its entirety. We'll skip a verse here and there, just for time's sake. But for the whole of it, we're going to look at James chapter 2, a chapter which is primarily focused on the danger in being a person who just says a thing but does not do a thing. Now, as you can see behind me, I've summarized what I think James 2, or really the whole book of James in general, is about, and that is practical Christianity. If you ask a, a scholar or if you ask an old-timey preacher, one of the things that was always said about James, the book of James, the whole of it, is that James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. 
It is like Solomon's old writings from the Old Testament, this, this book of divine wisdom and great little nuggets of truth and, and just simple, easy to remember and often memorized, and certainly I would encourage that too, these little um, almost fortune cookie sayings of, of clever spiritual application. And those people who, who take the book of James and really look at it as he invites us to do in chapter 1 by looking at it like a mirror that reflects the kind of people we should be, those are the people who really, when they apply that book, they grow and they develop as Christians the way God would have us do. And what they do when they do that is they apply practical Christianity. Because that's what the book does. It takes Christianity that in all of its abstract forms and it kind of puts it into practice. It tells you here's how you apply the idea of being a Christian. Now we say practical Christianity. What does the word practical mean in that sense? Well, it means two different things. It means, first of all, something that is doable. It is something that you do, something you undertake. You practice Christianity. That doesn't mean practice in the sense of practice makes perfect. You try before you actually do. It means practice like you practice medicine. It means practice like you undertake in the action. You are to practice Christianity. As James says in chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, to have pure religion. Well, to practice pure religion, you might say, is to visit the fatherless and the widows, etc. We're actually going to go to chapter 1 here in just a little bit. So the idea of practical Christianity is the idea of Christianity put into practice. Christianity put into action. What does that look like? But the other definition of the word practical is it just works. It's not flashy. It's not showy. It's not fancy. It's not anything bells and whistles. It's just meat and potatoes. Put it into action and it just works every time. When people do Christianity, listen, we didn't invent it. The, the guy who's never done anything wrong, Jesus invented it. The one who was absolutely perfect in all things created Christianity. So if you just do it, it's going to work. And not just for yourself, but for your neighbors too. Not just for your neighbors, but for yourself too. Christianity, when put into practice, just works. You don't have to worry that it may look fancy and never actually get the job done. It will always get the job done. That's practical Christianity. And that's the lessons we learn. Those are the lessons we learn in the book of James. Now, considering chapter 2 in particular, think about this. If you look at James chapter 2, your Bibles are open there right now. Just glance through it real, real, real quick. Just look over the chapter in, in just kind of a, a quick skim. You very likely are familiar with this text. And very likely, you've studied this text many times. You've heard sermons many times from this text. You've considered it privately in your home, in your own personal study. We're familiar with James chapter 2. Here's what people tend to do with this chapter. They tend to break it into two sections. We read through James 2 and our minds very naturally say there's a dividing point where there's this side that talks about this and there's that side that talks about that. You have the first seven or so verses that people tend to break and separate from the rest of the group. And they say, well, these verses are all about how we should not show partiality, how we should not show favoritism of one person or one kind of person over another or another kind. That's what the first part of James 2 is all about. All right. And then they'll say, but look here at the end of the chapter, the last dozen or 13 or so verses, this section is all about how faith without works is worthless and how we have to put the faith that we have in Jesus Christ into action or it's not going to do anybody any good. That's the second half of the book of James. And I don't dispute that the first half is about showing favoritism. And I don't dispute that the second half is about faith and works and everything that goes along with those two ideas. 
What I'm saying is, you're leaving out, if you think that, these are two separate things, you're leaving out the middle of the chapter. A middle which perfectly bridges the two together and illustrates just how cohesive a unit they are as one. James 2 is not about two different things. James 2 is about one. That Open your Bibles, if you're in James 2, just turn back a page and look at James chapter 1. And I want you to notice just a couple of verses to see how as much as we call James the Proverbs of the New Testament, it really isn't so much a bunch of little sayings, so much it is one big idea about putting Christianity into practice. Specifically, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Look at James 1 verse 22 to start with. James says, if you are doers of the word, sorry, do not be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving your own self. You see right there what he tells you, and the danger is being a person who is a hearer only, a passive intaker of the word, when you ought to be a doer, active participant, a practicer of the word. Skip down a bit. Look at verse 26. If any man among you seems to be religious, but bridles not his tongue. You see, here's a person who is doing one thing, but not another. Acting one way, but not the other. He seems religious. There are some things about him that carries the idea that you would think, this person seems religious, but then you get it to know him a little longer. And in one case, he cannot control his tongue, something he'll focus on more in chapter 3. This man's religion is vain. And then he tells you what real religion is supposed to look like. What does not vain religion look like? What is pure religion? Verse 27, chapter 1. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to put it into practice, to visit the fatherless and the widows and their afflictions, and to keep oneself unspotted from all the world. Again, an action thing that we must do. James in chapter 1 is setting the tone for things. He's planting seeds. He's going to water in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. He is illustrating how your Christianity is worthless. Your Christianity is not just half finished. It's, it's a zero. It's not a 50%. It's a 0% if you're only talking the talk. If you're only acting a certain way. If you're not actually putting it into faithful practice, your Christianity is worthless. Now having said that, you go to chapter 2. And what he does with chapter 2, yes, in the first part, he talks about how we need to be a people who are fair to all and not showing favoritism to some. And yes, at the end of the chapter, he talks about how you shouldn't be a people who just talk about having faith. You should be a people who put that faith into a working practice. But there in the middle is this text that bridges the two and ties us all the way back to chapter 1 where he says you must practice pure religion. You must be a doer of the word and a doer of the work, and not a hearer only. Now, to take that, co that concept, to take that notion, to, to summarize it, to distill it, you have James 2, verse 8, where James says, if you fulfill the royal law, you do well. And what's the royal law? He defines it in that same verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. A person who commits the sins mentioned in the first half of the chapter is a person who does not love their neighbor. A person who commits the sins in the second half of the chapter is a person who does not love their neighbor. So if you fulfill the royal law, if you love your neighbor, then you are practicing pure religion. If you love your neighbor, then you are undertaking in practical, put into practice, it just works, Christianity. The problem is, that's a big if. Because sometimes my neighbor is someone that is hard to love. Sometimes circumstances are what they are. 
where when my, uh, the call comes forth and I have to love my neighbor, it becomes easier sometimes in certain circumstances to love someone more than my neighbor and love my neighbor less. Or sometimes the circumstances are that it's easier just to say a thing and not actually have to put in the grunt work to do the thing. But that's not loving my neighbor. I may say the words, I love my neighbor. Anybody can do that. It's actually doing it, being a doer, not a hearer. That's the challenge. But if you do, then you do well, James says. Now, that's, that's the introduction. Let's take that idea and let's just examine the chapter and see how that's one consistent idea through these two halves. Look at the beginning of James chapter 2. And what he says here, first of all, is if you love your neighbor, you can't play favorites. Look at James 2 verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect, the King James says, with respect of persons. Your Bible might say with partiality or with showing favoritism. That's the idea. Do not be a person who walks around thinking, I have the faith. And I don't mean my personal faith. I mean the faith. I have the unifying doctrine of Christ, that I hold it, that I possess it, that I live it. Do not be a person who says, I live after the faith, the faith of Jesus Christ specifically, while also being a person who shows favoritism of one kind of person over another. And that little clause of Jesus Christ, that little prepositional phrase is critical because it reminds us all of whose example we're following, of who it was who set the template, who paved the way, who showed us what kind of people we should be in this context when it comes to dealing with different kinds of people. Because Jesus showed no partiality. Oh, he treated people differently because people are different. But in terms of who he was willing to help and who he was willing to serve, Jesus served and helped Samaritan. Jesus served and helped Centurion. Jesus was a person who served and helped all. He did not say, well, you're better than this person. So I'll help you a little more and I'll help you a little less. He didn't show that kind of favoritism. So let us not ourselves be the people who, have, who claim to have the faith of Jesus Christ, but don't actually put into practice what Jesus actually did. Now, what does that look like? In what ways could we show favoritism? Well, look at verses 2 and 3 and see the illustration that he provides. And mind you, this is just an illustration. This is just one of, us, of an endless number of scenarios that we could find ourselves in. All right? But this is the one he says. If there comes to your assembly, <clears throat> verse 2, a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, the King James says. And there also comes in a poor man in vile raiment. And you have respect to him that wears the shimmering clothing, literally. And you say to him, to this fancy person, sit here in the good place. And you say to the poor, sit over here. The King James says, under my footstool. Your more modern translation might say, at my feet. Here is the scenario. Here is an assembly like we have right here. And there comes through our double doors a person with not a Bolex, but a real Rolex and a gold ring and not a suit from JCPenney's that his mommy bought for him for Christmas, but a really nice and fancy $1,000 suit. And he drove not a 14-year-old clunker that's a convertible so people ooh and awe, but it's barely running, so please pray for it that it continues running. Not that kind of car. He drives a Porsche. And he's got a $500 haircut, not he showered. And he washed his head. Okay, this guy is dressed up. But it's not, he's not dressed up because he wants to be showy. He's not dressed up because he's trying to impress anybody. He's just so wealthy. This is just his normal attire. 
He's just always dressing fancy. But people who are, who are conditioned to follow the cultural mores, who are conditioned to follow the, the guiding principles of culture, see this person and we assume he's rich, he's fancy, he must be important. Now that's not to say Christians should not have the attitude of everybody's important. The problem is not everybody's important, it's this person's important at the expense of everyone else, as we'll notice in a second. This person is rich, he must be important. So where should we sit him? Well, we should sit him in the best seat because someone like that expects to sit in the best seat. They're used to sitting in the best seat. So let's accommodate this person and give them the best seat. Again, there's nothing wrong with giving someone the best seat. In fact, that's a very Christian thing to do. The problem comes when in behind him is a poor person. And maybe his nails are dirty. Maybe his hair is unkempt. Maybe he's got, a, a, a you know, tattoos all over his face. Maybe he's got piercings all over his face. Maybe here's a person who just does not look the part. Well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Who just does not look the part. The kind of person that someone might say, what is this person doing here? When they would never think to say that about the rich person. And what do we say to that person? Well, the rich guy's already got the nice seat. You're used to sitting on the floor from the looks of you. So you just sit on the floor. You're used to sitting at people's feet. You're used to sitting below the rich people. So we'll accommodate. We'll make you sit below the rich people. And all we're doing is we, the church, as he's describing here, are bending to the cultural um, delineations of society. Rich people get better pr treatment, preferential treatment. Poor people get lesser treatment. That's how the world does things. But that is not the Christian response. Keep reading. Look at verse number four. When you do that, James says, are you not then partial in yourselves? Are you not then showing partiality yourself? And become judges of evil thoughts. Look at verse five. Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to them that love him? Verse uh, 6 and 7. But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you to the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme the worthy name by which you're called? Do you not notice, James says, in society? Don't you realize that the typical way these things tend to go, that the very rich person that you are trying to prop up is the exact kind of person that usually is attacking you. And the very poor person that you're trying to push down just because of their appearance, just because of the contrast with the other guy, is the exact kind of person that Jesus' eyes gravitated to as the kind of people who would come to him and frequently did. It's not to say rich people didn't go to the Lord, but the man himself said, rarely will a rich person find the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for, for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. My Lord, who knows the hearts of people better than I ever could, recognized that axiom, that it is easier for poor people to find Jesus because poor people naturally are reaching out for things all the time, are needing things all the time. And what is it that we can give them but the thing everybody needs? Whereas a rich person rarely ever has needs. Rarely ever thinks to himself, I need blank. I, I desperately have to have. And so they tend not to even look for the one they have to have. The one that we can offer them if they would just listen. That's a generalization, but that's my master's generalization. So I feel okay with going with it. And that's what James says. It is often the case that rich attack you, yet here you are giving them the best seat. It's often the case that the, the poor people are your brethren, yet you're putting them at your feet. Why are we showing partiality? Because the world tends to show partiality. And the danger in so doing, as he phrases it in verse 
the end of verse 4, you are become judges of evil thoughts. The danger is when we start the slippery slope of man's judgment. And instead of following the example, the faith of Jesus Christ, we start judging ourselves and saying, well, I think this person should do this, and I think this person should do that. Or I don't think someone should do this, or I don't think someone should do that. And we start playing the I don't think game, or I would not game, or I don't wish game. Instead of just what has the book said? Who is acceptable and who is not? And when you read this book, it does not limit it to what a skin tone or to a bank account or to the kind of car they drive or to how long or how short their hair is or how dirty or how clean it is. That's not how the Bible defines it. So we need to be careful not to falling into that slippery slope. Because once we start making those judgments, this person should sit here, this person should sit there, well, what else should they do? What else should they not do? It's really easy to fall into that trap. If you love your neighbor, if you fulfill the royal law, you can't play favorites. That's not always easy because the world is constantly the template we're supposed to follow, whereas Jesus has given us a better way. Second point, also a big if. If you love your neighbor, if you want to fulfill the royal law, you must care for your neighbor. You can look at the first half of the chapter like this. That's the kind of Christian who talks and talks and talks, who says and says and says, I have the faith of Jesus Christ. I have the faith of, please sit right there. I have the faith of Jesus Christ. I am doing things, you follow me, sit right here. I have the faith of Jesus Christ. You talk, 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 but when people see your actions, what they see is this person's down here. Please, by all means, this person up here. And you start playing spiritual maitre d'. You start putting people in all the fancy seats and all the lower seats, and that's not the way it ought to be. That's the kind of person who talks, but their actions don't match up with their words. Well, isn't that also the theme of the second half of the book? A person who does not have the right kind of love, and so their words don't match their actions. Their actions don't match their words. Look at verse number 14. What does it profit, my brethren? A man says he has faith, but has not works. Could his just saying he has faith save him? Oh, I know how it reads. Let me read it exactly from the King James. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him? But let's keep that in the context. What did he just say? What did James just write? Here's a guy who says, I have faith. I have no works, though. I have faith, but we all look at him and we can see he's putting his faith not into practice. He's not doing anything about it. He's just proudly telling everyone he has faith. He's a Pharisee. He's talking and talking and talking. He's all hat and no cattle. He looks the part, but he's got no nothing. He's got no beef. He's got no beef to back it up. Right? I have faith, but you look and you watch. There's no works. So he's just, he's just words. No action. So could that kind of an attitude lead to his salvation? Could that, thank you, no, the child answers. Exactly right. Could that, that was paying attention. Gold star. Could that kind of an attitude lead that person to heaven? Is, can you just will yourself to heaven? I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to click my heels three times. No, that's not how it works. You must do. You must put your Christianity into practice. And then he gives you a scenario. And mind you, this is just a scenario. You could take this in a thousand different ways, but here's the one that James gives us. Verses 15 and 16. Here comes a person, a brother or sister, who is naked, destitute of daily food. Not, mind you, they're not, they're not hungry today. They've been hungry for days. They've been without their daily food. And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. And yet you give them none of the things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? 
Now, I don't know how your translation, which one you're using, how it words it. At the end of my verse 16, it gives you the scenario, and then it just says, what is it profit? Your Bible might say, what good is that, or how does that help? Let's, let's keep this in the exact context here, okay? In the previous verse, James is talking to you, me, the people looking at ourselves in the divine mirror. He's looking at the individual reading James. And he says to us, what good does it do? I'm going to make this about me. By all means, make it about you. What good does it do me to say I have faith and not have works? Does, faith, does that kind of faith save me? No. Then he gives the scenario. Here comes a person to me who is poor and naked and hungry and starving and cold. And they say to me, I need help. And I say to them, you be warmed and filled. What does that profit me is the context. I know it doesn't profit them. I know they're getting nothing out of it. All they got out of it from me is five words, four words, be warmed and filled, which is even lesser than the way we tend to summarize this text. Do we not usually, when we're summarizing this, say something like, and then the guy says, well, I hope you get something. Well, I hope you're warmed and filled. That's the way we usually summarize it. But he doesn't even say, I hope. He doesn't even say, best wishes to you as he closes the door. He just, he stands there with all the arrogance of a televangelist today. And he says, be warmed and filled. Not working. Gurgly, gurgly, gurgly. Still hungry. Still cold. Be warmed and filled. Good sir. I bid you well. And then you shut the door. It's like that crazy, psychotic, crazy-eyed televangelist that was a meme in the, in the past summer who went to you know, blow away COVID-19. Did you see that stupid video? That kind of attitude is right here being condemned. It's the guy who says, I'm not going to give you any food, though I have a full fridge. I'm just going to say, be warm, and shut the door on him. How does that help anybody? We know it doesn't help that person. That's common sense. But James's point here is to write to the Christians who might do this and say, how does that help you? Can faith save him, me, reading it? No. So could it save me if I just say to that person? No. He's warning you. He's warning me that we could be condemned if we don't say these, if we don't put our faith, put our words into action. Do you love that person? Oh, I love everybody. I love my neighbor. But your fridge is still full and their belly is still hungry. Do you love your neighbor? Oh, you know I love my neighbor. You know that I love my neighbor. And yet you're warm and they're cold and you have a spare blankie. Put your faith into practice. Because just saying the words doesn't mean much. Look at verse 18. Here's what a person might say. Quote, you have faith and I have works. End quote. A person might try to separate the idea of faith over here and works over here. As though these are two completely distinct things that exist in their own planes of the universe. You have a person with faith and, the, and faith does its faith things over here. And you have a person with works and works do their things over here. And you have this half, and I have this half, and James says, no, these are not two separate things. These are not supposed to be. These two things are supposed to be entwined with each other. Look at what he says. You have faith and I have works. So James says, you show me your faith outside of your works. Show me, show me faith without doing anything. I'll show you faith by doing something. That's what he says in the text. Everybody look at me. Put down your Bibles. Don't close them. But just look at me. All right, now I'm watching you. Show me your faith. Now, don't, don't, don't do anything. Just show me. Shoot, you couldn't do anything anyway, even if it wasn't about faith. If I just said, show me something, but don't show it to me. 
Don't do anything. Alex, show me your phone. Don't, don't lift your phone up, though. Show me your phone. Don't keep it in your pocket. Show me your phone. You see how stupid that is? Pardon me? That's what's going on here. James is like to this guy, how can I show you my faith? How can you even know I have faith unless you see it? Unless I put it into practice. You, can't, you don't have x-ray vision. Only God can do that. And even God, even God judges based on what you do, as we'll get to at the end of this chapter. Put your faith into practice. That's Christian faith. Practical Christianity. Show me your faith outside of your works. You can't. I'll show you my faith through the works that I do. They are entwined, faith and works. They're two different things, but you can't have one without the other. Incidentally, that cuts at the heart of working your way to heaven, which is what people always accuse James of. Martin Luther got this verse so twisted up that he ripped it out of his Bible. The whole chapter 2, the whole book of James ripped it out of the Bible, said it shouldn't be in there. Well, he'll, he'll answer for that the last day. But Martin Luther, because he did not understand the notion of spiritual works, he thought, James is preaching, working your way to heaven. No, James, in fact, condemns that specifically here. Because he says, I'll show you my faith through my works. In other words, your atheist neighbor, your non-Christian neighbor, who says, I don't need Jesus. I can mow my neighbor's yard. I don't need Jesus. I can feed my neighbor's dog. I don't need Jesus. I can watch my neighbor's house when they're out of town. I don't need Jesus. I can jump my neighbor's car when it doesn't start. I don't need Jesus. I can help my neighbor without Jesus. You can't work your way to heaven. You need Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you'll jump your neighbor's car. If you have Jesus, you'll paint your neighbor's fence. If you have Jesus, you'll feed your neighbor's dog. Oh, sure, the atheists may do it too, but it's not the works that's getting us to heaven. It's Jesus. I have my faith, and I show it with my works. All you have are just works. Can works save him? No. Meanwhile, there's this other guy who just says, Be fed, dog. Be painted, fence. He's got faith, I guess. He says it, but he doesn't show it. Can faith save him? No. What saves is faithful obedience, faithful working, as we learn at the end of the chapter, how God always, always has rewarded doers, not just sit back and talkers. Look at verses 19 through 26. You believe there's one God. I believe there's one God. Faith. Well, you do well. So do the demons. And they're trembling. What good is just a mental understanding of a thing doing for anybody? It doesn't do anything for anybody. Well, don't you know, O oh vain man, that faith without works is dead? That if you try to separate faith and works, it's like separating the spirit from the body, and it kills the body. Faith without works is dead. Wasn't Abraham, verse 21, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Imagine if God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, up to Mount Moriah, and offer him on the altar. To me. And Abraham says, Isaac, be offered. You think God's going to accept that? No. Abraham had the faith that God would take care of him. I mean, he didn't fully understand what was going on, but he had faith in God enough to go do. And his works led him to obey, and that led him to become a child of righteousness, as we read in the next verse, 22. Seeing then how faith wrought his works, faith accomplished him to do the thing. And his works made his faith perfect. Verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and was imputed to him for righteousness and he was called a friend of God. What is, by the way, what's the Bible definition of believed God? Faith in action. According to this. 24. You see then how by works a man is justified, not by faith only. Not by just saying the words. 25. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot, Joshua 2, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. 
You think Rahab would have been saved if she just said to the scarlet thread, be put on the window? No, she had to go physically put the scarlet ribbon out the window. You think she would have been saved if she just said to the spies, be protected? No, she had to actually hide them under her bed or whatever. Right? You have to put your faith into practice. She even expressed her faith earlier in that text when she told the spies, I've heard amazing things about the God of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How he saved you all from Egypt. He did all those wonderful things in the wilderness. And I'm blown away that you're here in my front door. Please, I'll protect you from the people. She put her faith into practice and God rewarded. That's how he rewards all of us. That's how he's always rewarded any of us. God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek after him. Action, not passive. 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works. is like separating the soul from the body. You say you have faith, but if you take out the works, your faith is dead, being alone. To tie these two halves together, you have verse number 8 again. You must fulfill the royal law. We must be a people who put our faith into action. Loving your neighbor is an action thing. It's not about have good feelings towards your neighbor. It's not about being lovey-dovey towards your neighbor. I would hope not. That leads to dangerous things. It's not about just having nice feelings about your neighbor. No, it's about putting your faith into practice and doing good for your neighbor and not showing partiality to which neighbor it may be you want to do good for and not by just expressing kind thoughts to your neighbor but by actually doing good to your neighbor. That's Christianity put into practice. That's love your neighbor. Whether your neighbor is rich, whether your neighbor is poor, whether your neighbor is needy, whether your neighbor thinks he's content, but he doesn't have Jesus, love your every neighbor. That's practical Christianity. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or if you're here and you are, but you're the kind of Christian that James was talking about, some, some cutting stuff in chapter 2, some harsh rebukes in chapter 2. He's getting right at the heart of the people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. Is that you? If it is, do you need our encouragement? Because we want to encourage you. We want to help all of us be a people that better loves our neighbor and puts our faith into practice. If we can help you in any way, now is the time to let us know right now as we stand and sing.